Welcome to the second episode of the Evolve, Reinvent and Prosper podcast with Chairman of Blue Research International, Brian Jones, and me, Elizabeth Hotson, journalist and podcaster. We're joined today by Simon Day, the Head of Marketing at food company Winterbotham Derby. So first, Brian, please could you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and then Simon, I'll ask you to do the same. Certainly, Elizabeth. Uh, delighted to be back with you again. I had a long corporate career. I've always had a massive interest in technology as a disruptor and particularly in the future of business at any given time. So it's, it's a great time to be involved. I think that that's a really nice introduction actually to Simon. So Simon, please go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and your company. I head up the marketing team at a company called Winterbotham Derby. Winterbotham Derby is the UK's largest supplier of olives and charcuterie, charcuterie products like chorizo, parma ham, those kind of products. And we're also um, more recently one of the biggest players in this new booming plant-based uh, arena of meat alternatives and so on. I spent my whole career in food, principally on the marketing side. Most of the people listening to the podcast will have seen your products in some of the biggest shops in the country, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, pretty much everywhere. At the moment, what's your best selling brand? So our biggest selling brand is a brand called uh, Unearthed, and that's um, olives, chorizo, those kind of products. But catching up uh, very fast is um, Squeaky Bean, which is our uh, plant-based brand. And then we have a new brand in ferments and pickles, another big expanding area called Vadas. The podcast is all about businesses adapting and constantly adapting. And I know Brian will be also interested to hear how you actually did make that transition from a company which was more involved in things like continental meats to products such as, I think there's an egg-free vegan tortilla that you do under the squeaky bean brand, isn't there? Yeah, well, we came to plant-based from quite a different angle from a lot of businesses. So a lot of businesses in plant-based tend to be maybe founded by vegans or you know, really coming from that mission angle. We're very much a food business and as individuals, we're real foodies. So the way that we came to plant-based was from an angle of this category doesn't taste good enough. And um, we think that the people who already buy into the category deserve products that taste a lot better. And also, if we're going to convert other people into eating plant-based and reduce their meat consumption, the products, you know, really need to elevate from where they were. So that was realization that we came to four or five years ago. Myself and, and some of my colleagues worked to identify what we thought were the best plant-based meat alternatives out there. We tried products literally from all across Europe, even got some products sent over from the US, tried all of those, compared them and picked out the ones that we thought were the best. We approached a business called Favera in the Netherlands, who we thought were making great meat alternatives, persuaded them to come to the UK, launched that brand in, in the UK, and we've been their UK partners ever since. And that became the fastest growing meat alternative brand in the UK. And we launched our, our own brand, Squeaky Bean. We've been through a few iterations of Squeaky Bean, even in the short time, that's the two years or less that's been around. We've also built a couple of factories to produce that product. So it's been a, a rapid, not a change of direction, I guess, but you know, like an extension to our business. 
You mentioned building those factories. Obviously, with that kind of infrastructure comes a lot of investment and money. And I know Brian was really keen to ask you about that side of things as well. I was actually, Elizabeth. Yes, thank you, Simon. Um, One of the things that at Bloor we've been observing was that the businesses that are successful and are out competing are those businesses who continually adapt, who are in that permanent state of reinvention. And what you've just described, Simon, is exactly that. You've seen a need, you've identified the need, you've invested, you've created partnerships in the first instance and then spun up through investment and energy, you know, completely new lines. And it's extraordinary. I'd definitely like to understand more of what you did in in sort of what order in terms of things like, you know, the factory investment, the brand investment and so forth. But I did see in the press that um, PAI partners were acquiring the company along with Addo Food Group. I I didn't know if that had actually completed or not. And if, if that was going to have any impact on your ability to do that kind of investment either positively or negatively it has completed yeah in the early part of this year we've always been a business with some private equity ownership so it was a changeover but not a total change for our business yeah that wasn't a part of the investment that we've made so far i guess if you have the bigger pockets that your owners have the more ability you have to um potentially accelerate some of that expansion but I'd say that was the the only effect there really. Take us through the process you know you came at it as foodies you said right okay this category isn't good enough we think there is a category you know what happens next? We're a business I guess that's always had a huge element of sourcing to it so we work with about 100 production sites all around Europe we're used to sourcing regional European traditional cuisines And that involves working with a huge number of production sites. So we've always had that kind of nimble culture, which says we don't have to sell exactly what our one or two factories make. We're able to go out and find the best product or work with different producers, develop product and bring that to market quite rapidly. And I think we have a reputation in the the industry for doing that. So that kind of culture was inherent already. It's pretty natural for us to go out and find product and find a way to bring it to market, whether that's the creation of a brand or the adaption of a brand, but also the development of the product oftentimes needs adapting for UK palettes or to find a gap in a UK category. And the first step in terms of Squeaky Bean was launching product that was outsourced production, getting the brand on the shelf. And actually, when we launched the brand, we had a a very strong dirty vegan positioning in the early days of the brand and the first products that we launched were kind of in that fast food vegan arena which is so popular in eat out at the moment but um, we realized that our product pipeline went beyond that so we've since repositioned the brand rebranded actually with much more of a focus on taste delivery which seems pretty obvious for a food brand (laughs) but actually there are a lot of campaigning brands in this particular category or brands that trade more on the kind of climate or animal aspects of veganism or plant-based eating and we wanted to take a different angle to that and really focus on flavor because we think a lot of those inherent benefits of the category are already in people's heads you know i think most people think i should probably eat a bit less meat for animals for climate for health as well but their big doubt about the category is is it going to taste good enough? You know, is it is it going to be a big compromise, a big effort for me to eat this? So that's really the barrier that we're looking to overcome. 
I mean, that's really appealing, isn't it? Because as you say, I think a lot of people are already convinced by those arguments. So actually, come on, give me something I actually want to eat is just a nice, fresh way to compete. I was just wondering that the extension from the sourcing into the investment in the technology, was there anything about the technology that was in any way different from what you were used to? I guess our approach in general is if you can source it, great. But if there's product that you can't source, nobody's making, then you need to do it yourself. You know, we have had our own factories for quite a long time doing products that we were unable to find in the market already. In answer to your question about is it new kit or novel kit, there's always adaptations of the kit. And whilst some of the base kit might be there might be other examples of that, you know, used around the world. It's really in the process and how we put multiple processes together to create a product in the end that's novel. So definitely the end product is novel and the process is novel and it's made up of some piece of kit that were previously available and, and some things that we've adapted. It's coming across in everything you're saying that you, you know, you've got a very strong core, very clear capabilities, clearly a lot of confidence. And whilst you are innovating and whilst you're creating new categories, you're not going too far away. You're making sure you can use those core capabilities and those core insights that you built up over many years. And I'm wondering if that's a characteristic, do you think, of what business leaders need to do when they're looking to pivot businesses, whether there's a risk that they move too far away from what they know best whilst at the same time they have to respond to, to new opportunities and new threats. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to understand your own strengths and they aren't always category specific necessarily. Like you're saying, is there a danger of moving too far away? I mean, I think you can probably move quite far away in, in terms of categories. However, that applies to different businesses and food, I guess you'd say anywhere in the supermarket or different types of food. But as long as you're taking with you what your core strengths are and, you know, we're a very foodie business and that focus on delivering great food sounds really basic, but not all businesses in the food industry are like that. It's a pretty core strength of ours. I guess that's what we're bringing to this category. I had a, a question, I suppose an existential question in a way, which is that you were one of the companies to shape this category in the first place, the kind of sort of more trendy end of the vegan market. But so many different players have got in. You're seeing some really good stuff coming from the supermarkets themselves with their own brands. The priced at similar pricing points, some of the products are similar. So how do you adapt your ranges in the future to sort of retain the market position that you've built up over the last few years? I don't think there's ever been such a dynamic market in food, certainly not in the almost 20 years that I've worked in the food industry. We have very dynamic competitors, a lot of new entrants, a lot of big businesses, including big meat businesses, looking to invest in this area. So it's highly competitive, but fundamentally, there's the rising tide lifts all ships argument. There's definitely an element of that. Probably not everybody is going to benefit, but there'll, there'll be some winners and losers. But that competition is very healthy because 
this is a very expandable category you know unlike a lot of food categories that are pretty mature the growth rates are stratospherically higher in this area and the space in store is expanding and i still don't think we've reached the real tipping point of acceleration that will come in future so it's not that we're all stealing each other's lunch at this stage probably that day will come but at the moment that competition is pretty good for the category in terms of how we um adapt our range we're pretty clear that squeaky bean we have a real strength in ready to eat product and one of the gaps we saw in the market and you know the vegans and vegetarians were telling us about and people who are trying to reduce their meat intake was that dinner was quite well served products like burgers and sausages which had obviously been the mainstay of meat alternative market there are lots of options there but in terms of ready to eat products at lunchtime there weren't very many options at all so part of it i think is about being clear about what's the area where you're going to be really strong and that's the area for us where we're focusing are you experiencing any sort of cannibalization from the plant-based business in terms of its impact on your continental meat business not at all actually and yeah, this is a challenge for the plant-based movement in general at the moment although plant-based is growing very fast it's not really materially affecting meat consumption in general actually as it happens continental meats is quite a fast-growing category as well and the covid situation because the majority of our business is in supermarkets there's been a growth in that side of the business as well you mentioned a while back um, in the conversation culture and cultures we all know need to be encouraged they need to be nurtured could you tell us a little bit about how you and the rest of the leadership team do that that's a great question yeah i think um we probably haven't been a business where we really plan that we're quite a fast-growing business so i joined the business in 2007 which is 14 years ago now and the business is probably about six times as big as it was then, both in turnover terms and, and people terms. So it's consistently grown every year. And I think a lot of the culture has come from just having success, doing again. And like you say, that does build confidence over time that we must be doing some of the right things. And not to say we haven't had many, many failures along the way. Of course, we have and learned a lot of things from those failures. But I'd say that we're very much a doing based business and that the culture comes from that. Is there a sort of reward system or anything that underpins that or are there structural mechanisms that you use as well? Definitely we're we're not the um, go-to business for kind of you know marketing textbook examples of how to generate culture probably I think it really it has been quite an organic process driven by I guess some of the characters in the leadership positions in the business you know we're not quite an entrepreneurial quite a maverick bunch in some ways uh, we have a lot of you know heated debates about what we're doing and, and the best way to go and we challenge each other a lot so it's a bit of a collective of entrepreneurs I think that has definitely filtered down in that ideas come from everywhere in our business and anyone in our business where they be in a like a supply chain role or you know, there's a lot of people the finance role there's a lot of people who care about food are interested in food so ideas come from all over challenge comes from all over and that's kept us moving over the years i think you did make quite a fundamental transition really from making continental meat products which you still do to vegan products but when all this change was taking place there are so many new things for you were there any surprises 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it is a lot of change because a new category, you know, new raw materials that we're using, new production processes, new consumers even. So yeah, a lot of moving parts and a, a lot of things that were novel for us. So one surprise I'd highlight, I guess, is our initial assumption was probably that big selling lines in meat would be the ones to copy, to imitate and to provide an alternative to. And that the bigger this line was in meat, the bigger the alternative could become. And that isn't necessarily what we found. So in the early days of, and still with Favera, one of the biggest selling lines there is the shawarma and the Greek kebab line. So, you know, nobody buys meat kebab in a supermarket, but we were launching a vegan kebab. So there's definitely a big argument to say, why are you giving an alternative to a product that doesn't really exist? Um, but that's really remained one of the biggest selling lines. Another example in Squeaky Bean is pastrami, which is our best selling line. Pastrami isn't a big line on the meat side, but that's a real big selling line for us. And it's become a bit of a cult classic. In Blore, we talk about this capability to adapt continually as being mutable. We talk about it as mutability. We're always looking to find organizations who are doing that and often they're doing it instinctively and what you're talking about is hugely impressive there's a lot of fear about people are scared of change they're scared of doing things differently and you mentioned with regard to the culture that this has come about partly through the nature of you as a as a collective of entrepreneurs but also the fact that you know you're successful and then you build on that success and you're successful again and you build on that success so the belief levels are high but you did also mention that you've got a few things wrong and it seems to me the way in which companies uh, handle when things go wrong you know it can crush innovation and creativity if there's a lot of blame goes around it how do you deal with it when it goes wrong and still maintain that momentum it's a really important point, I think. It's something we haven't always got right, I think, but one of the things we tend to do is test cheaply. It's a lot easier to take the failures if you haven't invested a ridiculous amount of time or money in that experiment. We always think test cheaply, test quickly, get a feel and then back your winners and invest then. Obviously, some kind of products are a lot more expensive to bring to market and it's difficult to do that and I guess it's all relative also to the size of your business to some extent but really our approach is don't overthink think for sure but I see a huge number of businesses in food certainly and retailers quite often as well who uh, will overanalyze pre-launch and they'll get really hamstrung by that there'll be huge investment pre-launch and then if the product fails it's more likely that somebody's going to get blamed it's more likely that they'll be reticent to do that again. So wherever possible, we say, you know, put in some quality thinking at the start, obviously try and knock the rough edges off your idea before you launch if you can, but don't hesitate to get the product out there and get real consumer reaction and then learn your lessons quickly and reiterate your product quickly and then invest. When you've got more confidence, invest bigger. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Simon. It was great to hear from your successes and what I'm sure were very minor blips along the journey. Let's pretend they were, shall we? <laughs> Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks, Brian. 
It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And that was Brian Jones, Chairman of Blue Research International, ending this episode of Evolve, Reinvent and Prosper. And Brian and I will be back again soon with another inspiring example of adaptation and innovation. Mm-hmm.